Hey, this is Randall Foster from Symphonic Distribution. You are listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Digital Media Association, innovations that shape the music industry in 2021. From Rolling Stone, payola is illegal. Lawsuit revives pay-for-play accusations in radio industry. From the Washington Post, why artists like Bruce Springsteen, John Legend, and Bob Dylan are suddenly selling their catalogs. And from Rolling Stone, Jewel Box Heroes, why the CD revival is finally here. Man, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about today. Jay, this is episode 76, so kick back and here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, good morning, man. I am I'm on Hawaii morning. time. I am just out of it. <laughs> Sheesh. Uh, for those that uh, didn't know, you've had a little uh, vacation this last week. I did have a vacation. I got to go to Maui. And so uh, we got back Good last night. And uh, this time of year, you are two. we are two hours behind. If you, well, Maui is two hours behind. Uh, they were three hours behind when the time changes. So... Uh, I got there thinking that I was three hours behind. In fact, I was two hours behind. But uh, <laughs> if you haven't been, it's worth going because it's just fun to kick back and do absolutely nothing. So that's oh, what we did. And, yeah, and uh, it's really hard to come back. <laughs> really hard yeah, to come back. But I bet. Well, back, we're back we in the saddle again. How about that intro with our buddy uh, Randall Foster over at Symphonic? That over at cool. Symphonic, L- great company, great guy, and yeah. uh, nice of him to uh, to give us a little little audio clip of him, and uh, we appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, we really appreciate Randall and his team over there, and that uh, Symphonic blog is such a great source uh, for your morning coffee. Um, I've worked with uh, the team over there, and just uh, think they're some of the best in the business. So. Um, check out Symphonic Distribution. Thank you, Randall. We uh, we appreciate that. Also, um, this week, I, I know you saw it, but for those that didn't, um, we were featured. Um, Feedspot featured the best twenty five music industry podcasts, and they ranked our little show. How cool! Yes, is that? they did. We were at number twelve, I believe. Were, were we not? Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I I saw some podcasts in there that I'd never seen before. So I queued them up and I'm going to be checking them out, which is really great because, you know, you and I talk 
all the time about some really amazing podcasts like Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle and uh, mm-hmm. Music Business Worldwide with Tim, Tim Ingham. Um, a few others that uh, weren't on the list that I jotted down uh, for for our listeners. Uh, Music Ally, their podcast is fantastic. Uh, Music Tectonics, you know, Dimitri uh, Vitsa and his team over there at Music Tectonics have a, a wonderful podcast that I don't miss. The one I told you about recently that I just recently got into was Strictly Business by mm-hmm. Variety. Yep. You know, Shirley Halpern and, uh-huh, and her Shirley. team over there. And a couple of other ones, you know, uh, Shameless Plug, Mike Brandvold and I have been doing, uh, you know, Music Biz Weekly for many, many years. Uh, Sherry Hu, uh, her water and music. And anything uh, that our friend Gigi Johnson puts out in podcast form is always of uh, top quality. But we uh, we really appreciate the team over at Feedspot uh, ranking us as one of the best uh, 25 music industry podcasts. Yay. Well, and and we've we've been thankfully mentioned in a number of those, and like you mentioned, what, what's really interesting, it, it's so hard to keep up with all of them. And every yeah. time uh, one of those lists come out, like you, I'm like, oh, I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, look yeah. at this one. You know, there's always something that I I didn't know about, and it's yeah. there's just it is so it's such a fertile area, yeah. and it's yeah. just there's not enough hours in the day though. Like like yeah, it's fun to TV, explore. like everything. It's very fun to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. By the way, the guy that I get to talk with every, every week is none other than Jay Gilbert. He, of course, is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which is weekly music news for the new music business. And Jay is a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and the Warner Music Groups, Fox Home Entertainment, a bunch of other places that you we don't usually mention. So Jay's been around the block. <laughs> Thank you. And the gentleman sitting across from me right now, just uh, hot off of a vacation, um, looking very relaxed, is longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music, Mike Etchart. Mike, indeed, I'm so glad indeed. you came back. I'm a little <laughs> jealous that you got to uh, spend some time, you know, frolicking in the ocean and, you know, visiting the uh, island, but uh, I may follow your lead here at some point. You got to do it. You got to, and you know, we should mention that we, because we're on the West Coast, we are spoiled anyway. And so, but coming back to, to California was like, ooh, it's cold. And of course, it's the warmest place in the country right now in the, in the, in the 48 Maine. So uh, it, it's, it's funny to, uh, to go over there and complain about the cold because we live in Southern California <laughs> and we should do no such thing ever. No, we really, really shouldn't. Well, let's 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 talk about our sponsors uh, really quickly here. Um, Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website, they're all built in. Hosting, custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com and try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, to get 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. 
And we are also sponsored by HiPod. Since 2004, HiPod has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis. HiPod and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Speaking of Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. The number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. So big thanks to Banzugo, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Boy, we certainly appreciate it and have been have been fans for many, many years prior yes, sir. to us doing the podcast. So uh, we certainly appreciate that. So what do you think, Jay? Let's jump into the show and talk yeah. about our first article. This is from Dima. Uh, innovations that shaped the music industry in 2021, and there were many... For those that don't know, DEMA, uh, the Digital Media Association, represents leading streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Pandora, and YouTube. Um, I've spoken to their CEO, Garrett Levin, on the Music Biz Weekly podcast. Super cool guy. Um, great things that they're doing over there. And this this story um, is from DEMA. It's innovations that shaped the music industry in 2021. You know, just like they did last year, they're going to highlight some examples of just innovative things that some of these streaming services have done. And I'll kick it off with Amazon, a couple of things that they've done. One is the DJ mode, you know, which allows users to intersperse listening sessions with commentary and insights from DJs, artists, and tastemakers, which I love a lot. I'm a big fan of the track by track kind of interviews. Um, they also have this pop-up video style music trivia, um, with the, yeah. the Amazon device, which shall not be named because I'm surrounded <laughs> by them. And then the other one is, uh, from Amazon is artist shopping experience. You know, you can purchase, you know, merch, apparel, you know, accessories, all sorts of things. Um, customers can discover new music, watch live streams, and browse an artist's merch all from the Amazon uh, Music app. So that's that's Amazon. Over on Apple Music, they've got, and something we've talked a lot about, is the spatial and lossless audio. Yeah. Uh, and as they say, enhance the sensory experience of sound with audio that goes beyond left and right channels and into the realm of 3D, moving above, around, and behind the listener. And we've talked, a, a, again, a lot about kind of the rollout of spatial audio. Um, yeah. And how, you know, it's just, it could be done better, Jay. <laughs> You think it'll get there? I mean, because you and I, I know we've talked about this before, but for those who didn't hear, you know, you were kind enough to take me into the studio with Greg Penny and listen to some of this uh, Dolby Atmos. My goodness, it was stunning. And I'm not hearing that yet with some of these uh, digital service providers, even though they say it's spatial and it's lossless and it does sound better, but it's not what you and I heard. No, and that's part of the problem is I think that um, oh, there's so many problems, you know, and, and we've talked about this as, as well. And we were both at, were we both, we were both at Universal when we were doing the, the surround sound audio back yes, in the uh, super, DVD and, audio, SACD. And, and SACD, right, exactly. And, you know, I think one of the challenges is that th- there is no real kind of, um, What's the right word? There's no sort of uh, official thing that says it must be this when you're doing 
spatial audio or like specifications audio. or right. whatever. Yes. And and what the major labels are trying to do now, and this, this this is being played out again, like it did 15 years ago or 20 years ago almost, which is you know they try to do it on the cheap, and the reality is you need to spend some money to get a good immersive mix, and you need to go back to the files and and get high resolution transfers if it's if it's a digital tape you've got to go or or go back to the to the Pro Tools files or whatever files exist, and it it is not uh, a a a process that should be taken lightly. And so right. we've got a lot of the labels trying to do it on the cheap and go in and, and spend $1,000 to have it done instead of ten dollars or $12,000 and give the time for it. And that's really what's messing up, I think, the rollout and, and the excitement about spatial and immersive, which is sort of the same thing. Um, yeah. It is the same thing. Um, and so, you know, and Apple came out saying that they're going to, that, that's going to be a big component of their offering. And yet there isn't a lot of great or there are a lot of good mixes but there's not a, there's also a lot of bad mixes and it's also dependent on what you've got at home and yeah. so there's a lot of things that that are causing it to to be a bumpy process and rollout where it should be much more smooth than it is it's unfortunate yeah. and and, and yeah. i think what we look at at our former employers universal they being the behemoth that they are i think they're kind of abdicating their their leadership role by not really doing it right and and taking the bull by the horns and saying this is how it's supposed to be done we are going to set the standards we are going to do it right and let everybody else kind of follow so it's a little disappointing that our friends over at universal aren't taking that leadership role in yeah. in immersive audio very sad yeah. but it sounds well you've heard it as you and i have heard it in the studio or in a nice system it is it almost it's breathtaking tears. it's breathtaking yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we've yeah, got those coming from Apple this this past year. Uh, also, DJ mixes uh, built a proprietary. Apple built a proprietary tool upon Shazam, which of course they own technology to identify rights holders in DJ mixes, bringing thousands of remixes, mashups, and DJ mixes into the service that were previously unavailable. So yeah. That's pretty cool on the yeah on the Apple side. Let's turn to Pandora. Um, I'm a big fan of Pandora. Always have mm -hmm. been. Um, and they have this thing. Um, a lot of uh, people in the industry are familiar with AMP, which is their artist marketing platform, and it gives creators uh, really a, a deeper track specific you know insights on how fans are engaging with their songs, and that'll help them to really understand their fan base better and to grow uh, that fan base and you know get new fans. So, AMP Insights for Creators is the first one, and then the second one is cross platform collaboration. You know, and that's really about, you know, t they did one with TikTok and it, it hosted playlists featuring popular TikTok creators and TikTok tastemaker series and, uh, you know, a full-time Sirius XM satellite radio channel called TikTok Radio. Yeah. Our friends over at Spotify, they were not uh, always resting on their innovating. laurels. No, always no. innovating. Uh, yep. Fresh Finds, they launched a marketing program to spotlight independent musicians, including playlisting out of home and Spotify singles opportunities, while equipping them with a variety of educational tools, including a per personalized masterclass and one-on-one -on -one mentoring. So that's Fresh Finds. And then Lyrics empowered fans around the world to sing more confidently than ever with the launch of Lyrics, <laughs> a simple and interactive feature that even allows listeners to share up to five lines of lyrics at a time with a share card that includes the song name and artists across social media. 
I've seen those. They're super cool because there are there are times when you want to share a little uh, lyric piece from a yeah. song with someone. And uh, I saw this meme online the other day. It was pretty funny. These uh, friends were saying to someone, you know, we're really worried about you. You've been posting a lot of song lyrics lately. And the next one. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and, and I don't know if we talked about this. Are you a lyric guy or are you a melody guy? Um, when you're listening to music for the first time? Oh, for the first time, I'm a melody guy, but I am such a big lyric guy, um, like huge. Um, but melody trumps everything with me um, because I'll, we talk sometimes about the Ramones. The Ramones are not going to give you Bernie Taupin-esque lyrics. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. But that doesn't make them any less meaningful or valuable. It just depends you know, on what you're doing. I've always said that there's probably, you know, 10 people on the planet who can write lyrics like Bernie Toppin, Neil Finn, Elvis Costello, Bob Dylan, you know, and I would even throw Savannah Beist from the Accidentals in that group. Mm. Seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's, but so it's a pretty high bar when you're talking about lyrics. But to me, it doesn't have to be that even though that's my comfort food and I love that so much, if I'm going to come back to something over and over again, I, I need to have that lyrical stimulation. But again, uh, melody first for me, always. Me too. And, and I can go, like like you know, I've talked about, when we fall in love with a song, we, we I will play it endlessly over and over and over again. And I can be a hundred plays in before I really know what the hell they're saying. <laughs> And yeah. sometimes I'm I'm completely incorrect of what they're saying, you know, and I'm I'm yeah. singing along with wrong words. It's like Oh yeah, I love that. <laughs> I was that way with uh Haley Witters put out that song a year or so ago called Heartland. Uh-huh. And it was just so melodic as my friend Elliot Kendall would say, it had more hooks than a tackle box. <laughs> And I just listened to it over and over until I started going, well, what is this about? I should probably, <laughs> right. I should probably learn that. I should probably go deep on the lyrics now. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So, and then the last one that, that Dima had on here was YouTube and a couple of things that they launched. Uh, shorts, right? That's their short form video. Uh, gives people the ability to create short, catchy little videos, you know, using only a mobile phone and then string together clips, you know, kind of that TikTok thing. Um, but, uh, they launched that and then also, um, hashtag YouTube black voices. So YouTube expanded its commitment to black musicians and creators by announcing its second class of fund aimed at amplifying black voices on YouTube. So those are kind of Dima's, you know, staff picks of innovations that shaped the music industry in 2021. Pretty cool. It's funny because we're talking about it, it, the bookends of the of this program today are innovations that shape music in 2021, basically digital music, and then our last story is going to be about about the CD revival. So we we've got the whole thing covered today, Jay, in terms of technology <laughs> from 1983 or 82, and then up till 2021. So we've, oh, we've, yeah. it's going to yeah, be interesting so interesting show for sure. And speaking of, well, let's jump over to the next article. This is a we kind of covered this a long time ago, I think. October of tw- of uh, 2020, there was a piece in Rolling Stone that yes. kind of broke this wide open. And that piece I just pulled up um, is called Pay for Play Was Banned from Radio, But Texts Reveal It Still May Be Thriving. And it's all about the same players, basically, that are in this story. So for those of you that think this may have gone away... Um, I think those of us in the business know that this happens a lot, happens all the time, every day. Yes, and, it does. And you know, to be fair, 
the, this, a lot of this is about Steve Zapp and his, you know, uh, independent radio promotion. And he's taken a lot of heat from that first Rolling Stone piece and this new one. Um, but I, before we jump into the new one, um, I just wanted to read just a couple of sentences from that old article to kind of set the stage because that was really the first one to kind of come out. And, you know, I, I give you the headline and right under the headline, it said among the 2,500 text messages obtained by Rolling Stone, several suggest a link between airpay, airplay and record label payments. <clears throat> so, um, I can use the billing was this uh, chapter headline and it said several of Zapp's texts discussed paying or billing for radio station play, either when a song is added to a station's playlist or when a song's spin count is increased. So having said that, let's, let's talk about this piece that came out uh, this last week by Elias late. Yeah. So this is in Rolling Stone, as you mentioned, and the headline is payola is illegal. A lawsuit revives pay-for-play accusations in the rec- in the radio industry, and so the subheadline is: Independent radio promoter Steve Zapp made more than 130 payments, totaling over $300,000, to help cover bills for a West Coast radio company, according to court documents. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like you said, you know, if if you if you've worked for major labels over the years, you know that there's a lot of these independent promotion guys out there and they make a lot of money and they do pay they they kind of are this middleman between labels and radio stations or radio conglomerates and it's sort of major labels historically have used them as kind of a, a, a intermediary so as to not sort of touch <laughs> the stench of potentially paying. I think the play. term you're looking for is plausible deniability. There you go. Thank <laughs> you, Jay. Yes, that oh may be. And and you know these uh, these independent promotion guys have uh, long-standing relationships with a lot of these different radio groups, and so when you're a major label or promotion department, you are paying for that entree, so to speak. And yeah. And as the article kind of talks about, not only is it turning on the faucet, but it's also turning off the faucet. And that's what's really interesting. And it starts by talking about back in March of 2020, uh, Green Day's Billy Joe Armstrong released a cover of I Think We're Alone Now. That's a Tommy Mm -hmm. James song. Hoping to offer a small measure of comfort to a pandemic-stricken world. And he said at the time, I figure if we have to spend this time in isolation, at least we can be be alone together, he wrote on YouTube. Uh, So back in in May, Steve Zapp, who's this independent radio promoter, texted an employee at a station he has worked with to reduce the singles play count. I hate to do this, but Billy Joe needs needs to go down, Zapp wrote. They said they aren't working it, apparently meaning the record label wasn't actively pushing the song and not paying bills. If we take Uh. down, let's see if they were all of a sudden working it. So it was sort of a a ploy to see. But you can see, you know, if this, if, and I don't, I don't remember if that was part of his, uh, because Green Day, of course, was signed to Reprise, I believe, uh, a Warner label. Um, And so was this outside of his regular album deal? Did he just do that? So you can see how the, the, the label maybe was not interested in promoting something that wasn't necessarily theirs or wasn't part of a regular album cycle. Um, so, you know, so there, so in, in the end, that tactic was, was unsuccessful. Uh, he said, Billy Joe down, and they never paid a dime. Um, yeah. But it's, that's interesting. Well, and it, we talked about this at the time as well. It's like, how did Rolling Stone get this 
trove of texts from Steve Zapp. Yeah. That's, yeah. I can't get yeah. your texts, Jay. Uh, I know. It's like, how, how did this, um, my, my guess is that there's some either court action, freedom of information. There's somehow, because you don't just get somebody's texts, you know? Um, so yeah, in 2020, Rolling Stone ob- obtained those texts, you know, several of which refer directly to payments in money or goods to radio stations in connection to airplay. But Steve Zapp vehemently denied any wrongdoing, uh, acknowledging in a statement at the time that he had channeled, quote, certain promotional support, end quote, to one radio station, but insisting that support wasn't linked to spins and that his operations were above board. Um, but last year, uh, a court battle between other players in the radio station uh, unearthed documents that hint at the large amount of money that can be that can move between Zap and the stations he worked. Records produced in the lawsuit, maybe that's where they came from, identified more than 130 payments by Steve Zap in 2020 alone, totaling over three hundred thousand um, dollars. And this was covering bills. Um, for these three radio stations uh, controlled by Royce International Broadcasting. So according to the court filing, Zap, you know, allegedly acknowledged that he had been paying, quote, a budget set at $200,000, end quote, annually for those three stations, uh, the Bay Area's KREV, Palm Springs KRCK, and Las Vegas KFRH uh, for several years. So, you know, I think that... This is being, you know, investigated. People are looking deep into it. But we've always known that there are radio promotion people. And one of the things, I, I guess Steve Zapp said that, you know, he's not, you're not paying for for placement. You know, you're paying for uh, a consultant, you know, a lobbyist. And you're, you know, looking for uh, information. And there's a part of this article where they talk about how, the information that he's claiming is really something that, you know, um, you could get um, anywhere. So, you know, it's a he said, she said at this point, but it seems to be a smoking gun that there's definitely hundreds of thousands of dollars at play and it's being paid to a radio station. And when you pay somebody $300,000, it would stand a reason that you're doing that to gain something from it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and, and, you know, I remember when you and I first got into business, so we're kind of talking the late 80s now. Um, yeah. You know, every, it seems like about every five or six years, these things come up. And the industry has, you know, in the in the earliest days of the music industry, it was literally pay to play. Like they were handing over cash to, to get radio airplay. And it has evolved into this sort of quasi- lobbyist sort of you know i mean the, the analogy to to political lobbying is very similar and so you know and and it keeps coming up and and as you mentioned this this kind of came up in another through a series of different uh lawsuits that, that had nothing to do with it and then they discover these payments um but this will continue to be an issue uh, you know it's it's it rears its ugly head and then it goes back down again then it comes back up again and it's always going to be that you know if you've worked in a major label operation you know that the promotion department they are the highest paid employees it is there's a lot of money that goes through those departments to get airplay however they get it through promotional 
relationships, through through getting an artist to play at a Christmas show, you know, all of these things are kind of you know bartering, so to speak. And are they illegal? Yeah. Sometimes, perhaps, or you know, is it is it at an arm's length? It certainly is from most of the major labels, but that's the role that these independent guys do. And boy, it's. It's here we are talking about it again. This could this yeah. conversation could have been had in 1992, in 2002, and now in 2022 or 20, 2022, we're having it again. And I think we're going to keep having it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. So watch this space. Um, yeah. again, this is a second uh, investigative piece from Rolling Stone into this. Um, and we will we will see where it goes. Yeah. On to story number three, Jay, from the Washington Post. Why artists like Bruce Springsteen, John Legend, and Bob Dylan are suddenly selling their catalogs. And this is probably uh, one of our most talked about topics over the last year and a half, or since we've been doing the show, really, is, you know, all of these, all of the money that is streaming into, uh, no pun intended, actually, uh, into, into these catalogs and all of these companies that 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 we have been around for a long time or in some cases are relatively new are jumping in and and picking up all of these catalogs yeah. in most cases publishing but in the yeah. case of like Bruce Springsteen they're buying the masters yeah. and the and publishing we'll go, and we'll go into that a little bit in this piece the differences between uh, publishing and and the masters um, this piece in the Washington Post by, was written by Travis Andrews, and there's a companion piece in your morning coffee um, about this company that does these calculations for these companies um, to figure out what they're worth yeah. and what they should pay for it. And uh, you have to have a subscription uh, to read it, but it's it's super fascinating. But I love the way that Travis kicks this off. And and again, we'll get into the master and publishing in a second, but I love the way he opens this uh, article. He said, John Lennon once loudly screeched, the best things in life are free, but you can keep them for the birds and bees. Now give me money. Steve Miller Band put it more aggressively, take the money and run. It seems like many of their car- colleagues are finally getting the message, launching a gold rush for the music catalogs of the world's most iconic names. Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan... Stevie Nicks, Paul Simon, Tina Turner. They, they've all cashed in. Uh, David Bowie's estate sold his catalog earlier this year, John Legend earlier this month, and many, many more all in the past two years. But why? Uh, why now? Is it really just the money or something deeper at play here? Um, so let's let's jump into it. The, the next kind of sub-headline says, you know, what exactly are these musicians selling? Yeah, they say, first, it's important to understand that for most songs, there are two distinct copyrights. There's the song composition, that's the arrangement of the music and the lyrics, and there's the tangible sound recording of the music, known as the master. So we've got publishing and we've got masters. And as they say, often these copyrights are owned by different entities, and they take the case, of course, of our good friend Taylor Swift. Her original contract was with uh, the label Big Machine, which is common for a young artist. It gave the label the copyright to her sound recordings while she retained the copyright to her compositions. And so that, of course, publishing. Exactly. And that creates the two streams of revenue. Um, And of course, they they use the the interesting example of, of. Bob Dylan, whose catalog just got sold, uh, he wrote a song called All Along the Watchtower. Now, the the hit was really the Jimi Hendrix version of that. So if you're going to license that, you got to go to Bob's camp for the 
music publishing, and then you got to go to the Hendrix camp for the master recording of that. I should yeah. also mention, though, it's interesting we're talking about Bob Dylan because Bob Dylan's uh, manager, his first manager, Albert Grossman, was one of the first um, artist managers to really push music publishing and get yes. his artist songs recorded by others. So don't forget, Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. The birds. Was, and, and so Dylan, he, a, a couple of artists had success with his rec with recording his songs and then it became a rush to record a bob dylan song for a lot of yeah. artists in the 60s yeah. and so that was Albert, really uh forward thinking uh for him um because it Robert, wasn't yes. yeah it was a, a trailblazer and and to give it a little bit of context um the best way to kind of think of this is like a blueprint and a house, you know, the blueprint to the house is the publishing. You can, you can mm -hmm. sell that to a hundred different people and they can build their own house. that looks exactly like yours, but yours is the master. Yours is the, the original one that was recorded, right. Or mm -hmm. built in, in this case. So I thought that was a really good analogy. Um, the next sub headline says, is there a way for an artist to get out of these deals? And it says many, if not most recording contracts also include a re-record clause, and I'll go into this in a second, which prohibits an artist from doing exactly what Taylor Swift is doing right now, re-recording her own tunes. In her case, the re-record clause for her first five albums expired in November 2020. Now, we've seen this, I mean, from the days of Patsy Cline, where there were some re-records. Mm -hmm. um, lots of bands have done it. Um, Kiss, over the last, uh, I don't know, five years or ten years, re-recorded a lot of their classic hits. But here's the thing, they recorded them to sound exactly the same as the original, as did Taylor Swift. Yes. Now, why would you do that? Well, now, for example, you've got, you know, the publishing and the master again, and you, you it's basically called a controlled composition. And one of the things that or an area where you can make really good money is sync licensing. So now when somebody wants, let's say with Kiss, uh, uh, rock and roll all night, uh, and they go to Doc McGee, he can say, here, use this one because it sounds exactly like the original and they they have the publishing and the master rights to it and will reap the benefits of that sync fee. And I don't ever recall uh, an artist at the top of their popularity. So Taylor Swift already is amongst the most popular artists of all time. I mean, she's, you know, she's sold a massive amount of records and she is at the top of her popularity and she is now doing re-records. If, if that's happened in the past, I can't think of it. Um, and so you certainly Kiss is and was a big band, but they did this kind of after their, their huge peak. Heyday. Yeah, yeah, their heyday. And so, and, and I've worked with a lot of artists that kind of did the same thing. They were big in the day and, you know, as uh, then they decided to kind of go back and, and yeah. do some I of those records. I think you're right. I don't think we've seen something at this level. Yeah, exactly. So she did that and she has re-recorded those and they are, of course, and she has managed to create a, a buzz for these new re-records that, I, again, I've never seen. So the these so now you've got, but, but now you've got two sets of masters out in the marketplace. You've got the big machine Taylor Swift original albums and you've got these new ones. And that's also very interesting. Now, do, does Burger King care when they, which one they use? I don't think they do. And I, gonna, I don't know if most people could even tell the difference to be no. honest with you. I listen well, to those when yes. you and I did the, now the fans can, but uh, for a, a casual fan like me, when, when you and I first reported on this, I went and listened to them, uh, you know, uh, back, 
back to back. Honestly, I couldn't tell the difference uh, between the two. So kudos to her for nailing that. Because as you know, recording is a weird process. The distance from the microphone, from the amplifier, uh, just a slight inch here, inch there can totally change the tone and the sound. And so it's it's hard in some ways to duplicate that. But of course, with today's technology, like you and I were talking about splice and some of these things, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. You can also kind of more easily replicate some of these sounds. So they go on to say, like, why are these copyrights so valuable? <clears throat> you know, companies that acquire both the master and the composition, right? The publishing and the master of a song will have a much easier time licensing it. Owning publishing rights for a composition also opens up new revenue streams like mechanical royalties, you know, paid when a cover of an original song is recorded, to cite one example. Uh, companies are paying handsomely to acquire both the master and composition. Springsteen sold his catalog to Sony for an estimated $550 million. The company also acquired Simon's catalog uh, for uh, an estimated $250 million. Bowie's estate sold his to Warner Chapel. Uh, for a price upwards of $250 million, uh, according to Variety. So for most of these headline acquisitions, uh, we're talking about both sets of rights being acquired fully. Well, and, I, and, I, and that's one thing that I kind of found confusing because what, what, what I didn't know until this article came out was that over the years, Springsteen has, has um, re-upped and clawed back the, the rights to his master recordings. Smart. So that's very rare, very smart. I don't know that, and maybe Paul Simon is the same way, and I and I don't think Bowie is that way. So he, he's they, uh, Bowie's estate sold to Warner Chapel Music for two hundred fifty million dollars, but I thought I I don't think that's for his masters. I think that's just for his publishing. So yeah, it's 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 unclear. there are multiple flavors of this deal. Yes. Some for the masters, some for the publishing, and yes. some for both. And I'm unclear on which ones of these deals are which flavor. But what I found really fascinating here is the why now? Why is this happening now? And this is the best article I've seen so far that kind of points out why, because it's not just the obvious things, you know, that you might think about like streaming platforms and TikTok and Peloton and, you know, web 3.0 metaverse and all of this stuff, you know, there, there's also some tax implications um, oh, that yes. I wasn't really aware of in 2006, President Bush signed into law a tax cut that allowed musicians to treat catalog sales as capital gains rather than ordinary income, which is taxed at a far higher rate. Um, I wasn't aware of that. Um, and uh, it says here that uh, this this gentleman, Miller, um, he was from, I'm sorry to take a little second here. I'm trying to find out where he's, he was from uh, publishing. Um, anyway, he said that... Uh, um, that he would advise a sale of music catalogs for early stage and even mid-career artists at this point, but for artists that have uh, large catalogs over long periods of time, it's a great time to sell. It's a great time to sell. And as he mentioned, and you and I have talked about, he's, in this case, he's mentioned Bob Dylan is 80 years old, as is Paul Simon. Uh, Springsteen is 72, Stevie Nicks 73. Uh, Neil Young, who sold half his catalog, is 76. So, you know... All, if you if you hit those ages, you're thinking about estate planning. And, exactly. You know, do yeah. you want to leave this very complex business situation to your heirs that may or yeah. may not have a have a grasp of of the of of the nuances of 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 
working that catalog over the right. years. Right, and and to this article's point, those tax advantages may change. So it's a yes. moment in time. And yes. also there's some younger artists, right? Like John Legend, you know, mm-hmm. uh, One Republic, uh, the Ryan Tedder from One Republic sold his catalog to KKR for around 200 million last year, which kind of fall outside of that. So yes, it's estate planning, and I think that's smart and get it while you can get it. And, you know, some of these companies are paying multiples of that value that may go beyond the lifespan of that person. Um, So I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons right now. Um, But I hadn't really considered uh, the tax implications. And yet uh, we both have said uh, it's not about the money, Jay. It's about the money. It's about the money. (laughs) So uh, when you scratch the surface, it's always about the money and making the most educated uh, decision possible at the time. Yeah, super great piece. Uh, Again, Washington Post, uh, Travis Andrews really spells it out, um, what's happening, why it's happening, and why it's kind of a moment in time. And we'll see um, if these tax laws are changed, which... Uh, I understand from this article that they were supposed to be uh, under the Biden administration. So we'll see if this continues. Um, But again, fascinating piece. Yeah, absolutely. And our last story of the day is also another Rolling Stone article. This is Jewel Box Heroes, Why the CD Revival is Finally Here. And it's, Jay, it seems so funny to be talking about the CD revival. (laughs) And yet... right. We are. It's uh, and it's it's okay to talk about that. I think. Um, yeah. Do you have a CD player? I do. Yeah, I have a two. I have a vacuum tube CD player. I've, I've kind of a, a is that a thing? Uh, it's a long story. Yes, it All is. Right. All right. I bet it looks <laughs> yeah. cool. It does look cool. Yeah, and it sounds cool. Um, I only have but, one CD player, and it's the uh, external drive for my laptop. And yes. so if I need to rip a CD or listen to a CD, um, that's that's where I go. I don't even have one in my car a- anymore. But but listen, um, you and I have been talking about how now, um, you know, vinyl's outselling CDs and, and how, you know, there's been such a decline with the CD. But now it's, it's picking back up. And yes, a lot of it has to do with the, you know, almost 900,000 CDs that Adele uh, recently sold. But if you listen to people like uh, Tony Van Veen over at Disc Makers, he's been shouting this from the rooftops for anybody that'll mm-hmm. listen. And he's right. You know, when you have a merch table at a show, you know, you want to have something tangible that the artist can sign and that's yes. inexpensive. Um, we talk about premium vinyl. And sometimes, you know, with the backlog, um, with the cost, it, may not make sense for the DIY and maybe even some middle-class artists, but CDs are still affordable. And absolutely, it's, you know, I can see why um, I had kind of forgotten a little bit about CDs because I don't listen to a lot of CDs, but I buy CDs still. Um, and what I mean by that is when my artists put out releases, I, I buy the CD. Yeah. I want to open the package. I want to make sure that when I put it into the machine that the metadata is correct, you know, when it Mm -hmm. pops up, because sometimes it's not. Um, I wasn't working the Crowded House reissues, but I remember when Crowded House reissued all of their um, studio albums, which, and I love that band so much, it came with a booklet and little box. It was just beautiful. But the metadata was messed up. And I would put it in and some of them would just say Neil Finn. 
Well, yeah, he wrote it, but he's listed under the artist. The artist yeah. is Crowded House. Anyway, I digress. Um, I, I still have a lot of CDs, but uh, I, I looked this up because I, I was curious and I wanted to run this by you. So um, do you, and no cheating here, do you remember what the first CD was? The first CD, ooh, yeah, um, and and I'll I'll give you. A, I want to say a it was a classical piece. There's actually two first CDs. The first one manufactured wasn't the first one sold. It took a little minute okay. a minute for it to get to market. So the okay. first one sold commercially was Billy Joel Fifty Second Street, oh. but the first one actually created um, for commercial sale was ABBA The Visitors. Both of those were in 1982. Uh, wow. A little fun fact from uh, my little Google search. Well, and and let's not forget who owns who owned the patents for compact discs, and that was Sony and Philips. And I'm gonna, I bet, uh, I bet the ABBA track was a Philips recording. Had, yeah, uh, yeah. And so, uh, and and you know, to kind of we we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier in this show when we were talking about uh, C uh, Super Audio CD and DVD audio. The reason those formats came to play in the early 2000s was because the patents for compact discs, for CDs, that Sony and Philips held uh, were expiring. And yeah. so that, and let's not forget too, for CDs, that was an enormous windfall in terms of patent royalties for Sony and Philips. And so the, the, money. The, that was an enormous amount of money. So every time a CD was manufactured, regardless who was manufacturing it, a certain percentage of that went to Sony and Philips as a patent royalties. And it was a gigantic and enormous windfall huge. for both of those companies. Yeah, and huge. so uh, one of the things the article mentioned also, which is true, uh, as he said, <laughs> the CD box set, and that is something that you and I were both involved with professionally and both yeah. fans of, and that is the kind of thing that I miss the most is is those super deluxe packages with you know demos and versions you hadn't heard and you know talk about being able to just get lost in an album or in an artist or whatever the the, the, the collection was about was really fantastic you know yeah. and it was they, they were so they were just so um so desirable you know and yeah. and, and they were expensive you know so yeah. up, up to 100 bucks in in 1990s dollars and uh but boy you just lusted after when a new box set would come out remember there was a bunch oh. of newsletters that that had a all, all about compact discs and 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 the 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 special packaging and everything like that it was a fun time it was a really yeah. fun time to be in the business it really was, and uh, I, I just had such a passion for some of those collections, and like you said, you know, labels, obvious ones like Rhino, uh, you know, Gary Stewart put together some of these amazing box sets, but the, the thing this article points out is that CDs just work, you know, they just do, you pop in the disc, yeah. you hit play, move, music comes out, right, and it became the most popular format ever, but probably for the shortest period of time, you know, you had like over 70 minutes of music, and as they point out here which i had forgotten because i didn't really take advantage of this much is that you could program the cds i remember my first cd player um i could just press the buttons on the tracks that i wanted to hear That's and right. like for example i remember was it uh synchronicity by the police i think it was that had the andy summers song um mother and <laughs> 
I, I didn't like didn't, the song. Didn't need to I, hear that. And look, Andy Summers is a client. He's a friend. Sorry, yeah. Andy. I dig your work a lot. But that song, for whatever reason, I didn't like. And I could just click that little button off and hit the play on the CD. And that was pretty cool because you couldn't do that with a vinyl album. And with vinyl, of course, you had to stop and you know flip it every whatever it was uh, minutes and so it, it was pretty it was pretty cool the you know when cds kind of took over but you know they really took a, a tumble you know when napster came out and that's so funny because people complained about cd sound compared to vinyl but then when mp3 started becoming popular they complained about mp3 sounding crappier than cds what i learned later and something you already knew is that a lot of the CDs, at least the first ones being made, is, again, they were trying to do it on the cheap. So they were using Ugh. the masters uh, that were mastered for, let's say, vinyl or for tape or reel-to-reel or whatever master they had. Exactly. Yeah, And it wasn't until later where they started really uh, remastering and reissuing based on a mix and a master for CD. And they yes. sounded great to they me. Did. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I, and I, I have very clear memories of making that transition over to CD. And, you know, it was great because it, it never degraded. And that's the thing with vinyl. It does degrade over time. Yeah. And unless you're very careful with your albums. And as a young person, I was never that careful with my albums, you know, and, and <laughs> I would, you know, especially we, you and I were both playing in bands. And I remember like trying to, you know, learn, you would learn music from albums, learn this, learn how to, you know, learn what the chord changes were. And, I destroyed my albums because you kept playing the same part over and over and over again. Okay, what is that chord that they're playing? You know, trying to figure it out. And um, but yeah, I go back to my old vinyl that I still some of which I have, and they're like they're almost unlistenable because they're so. Did you thrashed. ever? Did you ever um, get a brand new album? Let's say it was on Japanese vinyl or ultra high quality vinyl, and record the first time you played it, and then listen yes. to the tape. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt. So, um, well, you know, it will be interesting to see. Um, I think they're, they're, they're for the foreseeable future, there still might be places, like you said, if nothing else, uh, at the merch table, it's always something desirable. And yeah. you know, we had, and and you know, there is something to be said for for ripping a song. And and keeping, I mean, ripping an album, so you have the digital files. We were just, as, as we mentioned at the top of the show, I, I went to Maui on vacation, and that's a six-hour flight, roughly, you know, each way. And uh, and I literally yesterday, my wife looked at me. She was like, T "Tell me how to do Spotify because I want to listen to music." I'm like, "You're not going to listen to Spotify because there's no Wi-Fi on this flight. We're over the Pacific Ocean, and there's no listening." So I and I had a bunch of digital digital files in my playlists and my in my phone which I let her listen to but you know you forget if if there's no interwebs then there's no connecting to the the, the celestial jukebox of digital files of streaming music and so sometimes it's nice to have some physical mp3s in your, in yeah, your device exactly <laughs> one of the things he said in here which really cracked me up and it, it's so true um he was talking about CDs, you know, when CD was king, and he said, no audio device did a sharper job of separating fans from their $20 bills. <laughs> I thought that was right. so well done. And, you know, he said, you know, we all spent the 90s going to record stores. Uh, he says that CD stores never existed. That's not really true. Um, I remember one in Seattle. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, it'll come to me, but it was CD only uh, store back right. in the day when I was working at Tower Records. But, but, yeah, uh, let's 
put that aside for a second, you know, browsing the racks, you know, taking something weird home, listening all the way through, you invested time, emotional energy, instead of giving up quick as you do with streaming. And there is something, you know, I thought vinyl was really romantic and great. You know, you would read the liner notes and you'd pull it out of the sleeve and it had that smell. And just, I love that whole tactile experience. CDs took it to another level because now you could have your disc man and be riding your bike and listen mm-hmm. to something or, you know, you couldn't really play vinyl in your car, although Elvis did. Um, <laughs> but it, it was a different experience. And I'm, I'm really happy to see this article because CDs still sell. I mean, Amazon yeah. still sells a ton of CDs and there are still people like me that if it's something that I love, I want to have the vinyl or I want to have the CD. I want to have that book on my bookshelf. You know what I mean? Um, It's great to have it digitally. And maybe I'm old school that way. But I think a lot of people, you know, that's why this premium vinyl is so cool. Um, And again, when you're at that merch table, you can't sign a stream. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. So really interesting article. And it's fun to... uh you know, and again, who would have thunk that, you know, and we've said this a hundred times since we started doing the podcast, because we were there for the demise of vinyl. And then we were there for the demise of CD and the demise of the cassette. And yet it's 2022. And while maybe not as big uh, in the case of CDs and cassettes, but there's still a market for those. And it's yeah. stunning. And it's certainly vinyl. And, um, we're still talking about it, and that you, I never would have thought that back in the day as we were making those mm-hmm. transitions between formats. So it's, uh, it's fun to talk about it, and it's fun to reminisce, and it's fun to still have all of those things. But I still, in fact, the only thing I don't have set up in my system is a cassette player. Um, and I just, I, I know I have a, a player somewhere in my garage. I got to go f- dig it out, but a kid, cause I've got a handful of cassettes, like, yeah, like I do too. demos. But you and know things. what I did, Mike, is I, I bought this USB, um, yes. tape deck years ago. So I can plug it into my computer, yeah. hit play on those old bootlegs or whatever, and just record them. So at least I can listen to them, you know, on my yes. portable device, but that's, I do have that cassette, but of course, you know, you're not going to find a cassette player in, in many cars, at least not new cars, you know, maybe no. older cars, but not any new cars. No, 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 absolutely. Well, on that note, Jay, what do you say we wrap it up and uh, and go back to the rest of our Sunday as we're recording on a Sunday? So we do want to thank our wonderful sponsors because, gosh, we couldn't do it without them. So big yep. thanks to Banzoogle and Hypebot and Bands in Town. We really, really appreciate it. And Jay, let's thank our our, our fans and, and friends that listen in. We, we certainly appreciate it, and we know you yeah, have a lot sure of do. different choices uh, in podcasts to listen to. So we, Jay and I both appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us a little bit every week. So yeah. on that note, on behalf of my good friend Jay Gilbert and myself, thanks for joining us. This has been Episode 76. We'll see you next week for Episode number 77 on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.